Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 253, The Walls Scream with the Blood of the Innocent. This week we're discussing season 5, episode 11 of Angel, Damage, and episode 3 of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, The Education of a Magician. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, starting with Angel this time. Very cheerful title we've chosen. Um, I like st- I like <laughs> kicking off a discussion with the with the phrase "the walls scream with the blood of the innocent." Sure, um, who doesn't? And actually, I didn't necessarily plan to articulate this up front, but might as well um, point out that you know one of those happy coincidences this time where we have uh kind of some interesting parallels between episodes um that just happened to sort of align this way you know you have dana and lady pole each as the kind of mad woman in the attic uh trope of you know this kind of somewhat psychotic um even potentially dangerous young woman but one who's also the victim of horrible crimes and atrocities and traumas um and has been sort of abused and driven mad and locked up and you know is not faring too well with that so um just kind of a strange little crossover this week um Mm-hmm. And yeah, so and as much as they are, you know, potentially killers themselves, they're also the victims of these crimes, which I, th- I think works well with the title that we chose. Like, yes, like the blood of the innocent, but also they're kind of the innocent too, um, which is I think yeah. kind of what we want to get into here. Um, yeah. Also, so um, since we're kind of talking about um i guess it's not really production stuff but but just stuff that's not part of the episode per se um i did want to mention um and i forgot to mention this when we were talking about what we're going to talk about um so this is timing wise um we're about six months from the end of buffy um i think they even say something like six months ago or something. And maybe when Andrew's talking, I I forget if that's in the actual episode or not, but that's the timing that we're looking at here is about six months after the Buffy season finale, Um, which puts it sort of chronologically before Buffy season eight begins, Mm -hmm. Um, which, so the comics kind of pick up a year after um, the season finale. Um, so just to kind of put that in context that like there is talk so the the comics have Buffy in Europe which we learn that's where she is now um, so like just to point out that like we're we're still kind of like we're not this doesn't really cross over exactly with events in the comics but it's kind of like setting up like what the events of the comics are, even though, I mean, the, the actual comics don't get published for another few years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but like just to kind of put it in perspective of like we talked at the end i think of, of buffy like kind of like okay we have this season eight stuff mm-hmm. um obviously i didn't bring up this episode because this kind of happens interstitially like in between mm-hmm. the events of season eight and whatever so just wanted to kind of put that into gotcha um you know context of where where they're at right um does dana ever show up in the comics i'm curious Ooh, I don't remember. I don't think so. I think we base this is basically the end of her story. Mm-hmm. Um, although I could be wrong. Okay. Um, yeah, it wouldn't have occurred to me to ask until you just kind of said that. So um, that was just curious. Um, yeah, I. it's been a while since I've read season eight. Sure. So, I mean, there, I'm sure there's a lot that happens uh, that I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just I don't, I don't remember her specifically coming up. But. Gotcha. Um, well, I didn't actually plan to start with the Dana stuff, so we'll pause that slightly um, and want to. <laughs> check in with Eve first, who we don't see, but we do get a mention and following up on the cliffhanger from the previous episode. Um, and uh, yeah, you titled our, our bullet point here, what to do about Eve? That's sort of the question, which then is dropped this episode as they're all distracted by this kind of right. new crisis that emerges. But we do have which... this this looming threat that... Um, like, as we said at the end of the previous one, they just, it, it's like they know that she's involved, but she's somehow earned enough of the benefit of the doubt to get away with leaving the building and nobody physically stopping her. Um, and it's like, they're kind of kicking themselves as soon as she's gone, but nobody really wants to be like, pull the trigger on, okay, like, stop her, don't let her go anywhere. Um, so they, they kind of conclude, well, we'll, we'll restrict her access. That's sort of, you know, a compromise. I, I kind of wonder if it'll be the compromise that satisfies nobody, you know, like it's neither trusting nor kind of smart enough to really satisfy anybody really. But, um, like, okay, they restrict her access, but, like, where's she gone in the meantime? What's she doing? Um, You know, if she knows she's been sort of caught, she's off kind of making other plans and, you know, whatever. So um, it is kind of interesting that they just sort of leave that plot thread sort of dangling for the time being until the next few episodes. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, too, because I feel like even in episodes where, you know, obviously we've talked about how some episodes um, in Buffy and Angel and all of these shows are more arc heavy than not. Right. Like sure. this is kind of, I mean, this is really kind of a monster of the week episode, though. I, go, I suppose you could argue who's the monster. Right. Is it? uh Dana or is it, you know, Wolfram and Hart or is there a little, is there enough to go around for everyone? Mm. Um, anyway, the, my point being that like, 
this is obviously a arc light episode. Um, but I feel like a lot of times there's still that like anchor and, and even in episodes where maybe it's like, we do get the discussion at the beginning, but typically they bring it around again at the end of like, Oh, you know, there's this conversation about Eve up front just to kind of, I mean, the upfront conversation, if you don't know what's coming, even with the, uh, whatever you call the scene before the title, right? Like the little teaser scene, even with that, like, then they go into a conversation about Eve and you're kind of expecting like, okay, we're going to like get some mm -hmm. confrontation here. And then it just totally goes yeah. the other way. Yeah. And then they never come back to right. it. And I feel like a lot of times they do, you know, shows like this do have that bookend mm -hmm. effect of right, just to kind of mention let you something know, in the beginning. We haven't forgotten about it. We're coming right. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they don't do that. Like they sort of end on this. Well, I mean, we'll get to the, you know, ending with Spike and and Angel um, a bit later. But um, it, they just never come back around to it. So. Yeah, it is. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's bad or wrong or anything. Like, I don't, like, it's fine. It's just usually if they're going to, like, bring up something that's part of the larger arc of this season, they usually will, like, come back around to it at some point, and they just never do. So it's well, it's a little strange. And what's funny about it is that you kind of said this is a Monster of the Week episode, but what's kind of funny is it treats the mythology like the monster of the week. It treats the Buffy mythology that way. Like in right. some ways, the monster of the week is the most, like if we're looking at this of the Buffy verse rather than just Angel, then it's like, this is dealing with the Slayer mythology. What's more arc heavy than that? But it kind of shows the separation of how Angel has moved away that like when that mm. intrudes, it's treated as like, all right, here's this week's crisis we got to deal with, you know, but like our real concern is over there, is over with Eve. And that's not where, like our real concern in the sense of, you know, Wolfram and Hart, Angel, the, the right. ongoing sort of plot mythology of the Angel series that walked out the door with Eve and everybody's sort of not paying attention to that. But in a sense, that's the bigger threat from like within the angel narrative yeah um and and angel does kind of allude to that after andrew leaves of like okay andrew's right we have other things that like worry about or whatever yeah right so i don't think but i don't think it's forgotten in the sense that i don't think it's like a, a mistake it's an interesting kind of diversion and maybe with a different story it might seem like a mistake like Oh, you're really gonna not go after Eve because of some crappy monster of the week, guys, really? But because it's like the slayer, it has like enough weight to like justify them moving their attention somewhere else. You know? Like and I don't know whether the writers intentionally sort of crafted it that way, but I think it kind of the more I think about it, I think that makes it kind of work that if anything can justify their their distraction, it's 
Andrew bringing information about Buffy and Giles. And it's this revelation of all these new slayers that are around and the damage that they can do and all that sort of thing. Um, so it actually like does end up working as a counterbalance to the whole like Eve Wolferman Hart side of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so the writers are Stephen Denight and Drew Goddard, who are not writers that I would expect to just sort of like forget pieces of Slayer mythology, yeah. right? Like, yeah. like those are those are two of the most solid writers, right? I think, or to or to forget that, like, point. oh, we have an ongoing plot that we have to serve. Like, no, I think they probably right. are like. You know, if if we're gonna not deal with the Eve crisis, we need a really good reason. And you know, so and the intrusion of Slayer mythology into the story, I think, is kind of provides that. Sure. Um, and I believe both of whom wrote for Buffy season eight. <laughs> so like, right. also like, I mean, you know, if you're gonna have crossover, like, yeah you know, there's definitely going to be um, some stuff there. Definitely Drew Goddard did. I am I don't remember if Stephen DeKnight did. Yeah. Um, he did, actually. I just confirmed on Wikipedia. So, they, yeah, so, like, both of them are involved there, too. So, just to say that, like, I mean, again, that obviously comes later, but, yeah, I don't... I would definitely expect given the writers and given the intentionality of the like like I think that's what makes it stand out even more is that they didn't do a bookend mm -hmm. is the fact that like you they typically do and it seems like they explicitly omitted mm -hmm. it this time around it, it doesn't seem like oh we forgot or even like oh well we didn't have time to put it in like because there's probably a few moments in here. Like, if you wanted to fit a short little 30-second or minute-long scene, you know, even of just Angel being like, okay, now what do we do about Eve? <laughs> like, right, now that that's end, over, like, like, now can we talk about Eve? Yeah. Yeah, like... Yeah. I'm sure they could have fit that in, because there's, you know, flashbacks and, you know, moments of silence and, you know, conversation that probably they could have cut out a little bit yeah, here and yeah. there. Um, you know, to, to fit something in if they really wanted to. So I, I feel like it's just that deliberateness of yeah. the structure that makes it interesting. I, again, I don't think it's bad or wrong because, like, we're obviously remember the conversation at the beginning and we, you know, enough to make us think that, like, coming into it cold, that's probably what you think the episode's going to be about. Sure. And then they kind of trick you with with this yeah, let's turn the Slayer mythology on its head and make it a monster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about that. Um, the kind of monsterification of uh, of the Slayer thing, and that's kind of what Dana um, plays with. Uh, the So, like... You know, we've already kind of are making references to Buffy and we'll make references to other things um, a little later on. But the other um, 
in the kind of opening, even before you know she's, I mean, it's only strengthened once you find out she's a slayer, but even when it's just the kind of opening situation of the week, the scenario of, uh, of her in the psych ward, um, I couldn't help but think about normal again. Um, and like, I kind of feel like this is a, a riff on that sort of concept, you know, of now it's kind of clearly in real life, not a nightmarish dream. I mean, she is kind of trapped in a nightmarish dream, but she's also physically trapped in the psych ward in real life too. Um, but like, even though her circumstances are different from Buffy's in that episode, I feel like there's kind of a deliberate spin on this idea of the Slayer who's treated as though she's insane. Um, and, you know, here's a question. Is Dana insane? Like, she might actually be insane as well as treated that way. Like, I think it, it seems throughout the episode, like, yeah, there's magical elements to what's going on with her and she's clearly just been activated as a potential slayer and has these new kind of powers and memories and that's kind of new but it seems as though her kind of mental illness isn't new like it's not like she's just been committed because she kind of got activated and started right it's like no she's been committed for a long time you know possibly since she was you know, rescued from this awful, like, abduction situation from when she was a kid. Um, mm -hmm. And it's sort of that which has, you know, kind of put her in this place. So it's not even really like there's a magical origin for that. It seems that she's, you know, genuinely, you know, traumatized by what happened to her. Um, I, we don't really get that for sure. I'm kind of piecing together. Like, we don't actually, like, it's very sort of, you know, being that she can't totally communicate her experience that clearly, it's a little bit hard to say exactly sort of what her life story is and how she kind of got to where she is, but it, that's kind of my reading of it anyway. Yeah. I mean, they only give you the barest, right. you know, minimal background enough to sort of make it believable. Like, we don't know really specifically what happened during that kidnapping scenario, how long it lasted, right. you know, what sort of torture or other traumas she might have faced and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I... I read it and I felt have always sort of read it as that she was crazy long before being activated. Um, we don't really even know how old she is, right? Mm, no, I don't think so. They don't re ever say like older teenager slash young woman ish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, like, we know that, like, potential Slayers, like, because Kennedy was, like, the oldest of the potential Slayers, right? And she was, like, what, maybe 20? Right. <laughs> right. Right? Like, 
so I, you know, assuming she's within that range of like somewhere in her teenage years, day nine. I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't remember if we ever actually get uh, how old she is, but, um, or even how old she was like when she was kidnapped and then rescued and how long she was in that situation. I mean, you know, you hear these stories of like, young girls who are kidnapped like now today who Mm -hmm. end up being with their kidnappers for years and then you know suddenly one day they either escape or someone recognizes something or someone and you know and you find out that like someone had someone and you know a young kid in their basement for eight years or something like you know who knows like what kind of thing that so that's the I mean, there's a lot of question there. And I think, I mean, I think that's also intentional. I don't think it's like, oh, they didn't want to just bother to like flesh out her backstory. I mean, I suppose that could have been it. I don't know for sure, mm-hmm. obviously, what the writers were thinking. But I think they wanted to have some level of ambiguity. Because like, yeah. I mean, to some extent that all that stuff doesn't matter. I think what matters is that... um you know, they talk about the Slayer dreams. Mm. I mean, we've seen that since season one of Buffy that like, you know, you have these dreams of what happened to past Slayers. And, um, you know, we've seen like the potentials having some kind of dreams and connections with each other. Mm. And it seems like, like these are, you know, because of the psychosis or whatever, you know, she's having these dreams, but they're like waking visions and, you know, it's affecting her either because of her already in existent mental state, you know, there it's sort of these mystical dreams or whatever are kind of affecting her mind differently or the, you know, mystical dream vision things are causing her state to be even worse than maybe it would be Mm -hmm. anyway. Um, and it does seem that the activation, again, like they're really fuzzy on the timing, so we don't know for sure, I guess, but it seems like based on the description from the doctor that like she sort of became more active like several months ago or that kind of thing. Like, like right. that there was a, there was some event that kind of made her kind of triggered her a little more. And it's like, oh, well, it doesn't take a genius to think mm-hmm. what that could have been. Right, right. Um, but again, like it's sort of vague and we don't necessarily know a hundred percent for sure. So all of that to just say that, like, I, I took it as like, she's been institutionalized for years, has been crazy for years and maybe even have had these dreams, but as a potential, like it, I mean, they might've even been waking dreams that were, you know, manifest as part of her psychosis or that they thought were part of her psychosis. But, like, as a potential, it's, like, she's just a kid with, norm, you know, normal teenage kid strength, mm-hmm. like, not Slayer strength. And it's, like, well, now that's a different situation. Um, right. So that's how I've always taken it. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Well, and, and the bits about, like, her being kind of a special case and the doctor sort of writing a book about her and everything. And it's, like, well, that could be because of her, you know her situation and and maybe he's been working on that for a long time but or you could kind of speculate that 
it's really in the six months or whatever since she was activated that he's sort of taken a particular interest in her condition. If she's sort of manifesting abilities and things that are not normal, um, you know, that he's sort of never seen before, that that sort of set her apart from the pack a bit. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess let's get into the interactions with Spike. Um, Sorry, and real quick, yeah. I did confirm that she does not appear in season eight. Okay. However, she does get a mention in a Buffy novel that was written and published between the end of Angel and before season eight was published. So I guess I guess there were you know there were several like I. I've never read any right, of the Buffy like novels and stuff. We've yeah. we we've talked about those as and like sort of canonical nature in general. Um, there, but you know, yeah. I guess for a time they were considered canon, and then like Buffy season eight came out and kind of like washed all of that sure. away. So um, there, she's like mentioned briefly in that novel. Apparently, I've not read it. I don't know anything mm -hmm. about it, and I don't even know in what context she's mentioned. But um, that's like the other, like the one other time she gets met. So some writer out there remembered her and uh, you know wrote her into something, at least as far as a mention goes. But um, anyway, that's that's the only other time we see her in the Buffy. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm I was, if, if her story had continued, I'd be sort of curious what Buffy and gang would sort of do with, you know, do about her or do with her, you know, um, like, can yeah. she ever, you know, if her, if her kind of, I hate using the word crazy, but if her craziness is, is not linked to her slayerness necessarily, um, right. then, then it's something deeper that, you know, as Norrell says, magic cannot cure madness. You know, like what if if she's sure. if she's if she was mad already, um, and maybe because of you know just genetics or because of uh you know a perfectly mundane but terrible thing that happened to her, then you know it's not like a spell or um, but mundane in the sense of non-magical non in the mad necessarily that's why i was in... like like a terrible thing but like a non-magical yeah, yeah. thing um yeah thank you for correcting that um that is what i meant well not correcting but clarifying yeah, yeah. just because like mundane has that sense of like yeah la di da boring. you yeah. know like no boring. like a yeah. yes a kind of non-magical but still very right traumatic right like yeah. you know horrific but but real world sort of root causes for the way that she is then it's sort of doubtful what can they do to help her you know um like it's not just a matter of the right kind of spell will release her from you know these visions and these memories and these flashbacks like like, we get flashbacks, and we've had flashbacks in a lot of other Angel episodes, but I think with this one, you really get the sense of the literal flashback of, like, she's having, not, like, we, the audience, are being shown her memories, but she has flashbacks to her experiences in the moment, mm -hmm. 
um, you know, which is sort of what gets her on Spike's trail because you kind of get this idea that all of her, as she's having these sort of waking dreams of and memories of all the Slayers, she's also experiencing like PTSD flashbacks of her own memories and they're all kind of getting mixed and jumbled and put into the same pile and she can't figure out the difference anymore. Um, So, yeah, so she thinks that Slayers that Spike killed are her own experiences and she kind of superimposes Spike onto her actual memories of the guy that sort of tortured her. Um, so you know, he, he, he's in a bad situation from many different perspectives. And of course, um, he's Mr. Hero of the Hour out there to, you know, fight the bad guys just in time for a vampire slayer to come along. So that's not a great situation for him to just be sort of strolling into. Yeah. Um, you know, it occurs to me that uh, Andrew talks about seeing a therapist in this episode too. Mm. He mentions his therapist. Maybe, maybe that's what. Maybe we can hope that, like, maybe the therapist is a slayer too. Because you have to think that, like, mm. well, I mean, we don't know how old potentially the potentials are, right? Like. Does a potential stop ever being a potential? Sure, there could be there could be older ones there, that there could be older ones who have like career never got activated. Yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe this is like a new Slayer like therapist. Mm. Um, I don't know. I so I will say I know I don't talk about like Bobby C's name, but there is like a whole group of Slayers who like are like Wiccans and stuff. So you have like Slayers who do magic and stuff like that, and you have like. You also have bad slayers, like you have like slayers who are bank robbers and right, stuff. That's right. Like, yeah, you mentioned who, that. Who pop up like in different places. So like, why not have like a cadre of slayers who are you know therapists mm-hmm. or you know whatever? Like, could happen. Yeah. You don't. You don't know. Um. Anyway. Yeah. Just, just I just thought of that. Like I remembered the um, Andrew reference to his therapist. Uh, it's when he sees Spike, he, he right, like right. offhandedly says, "Right, my therapist uh, thought I was like his therapist." False hope. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Um, like Gandalf the White resurrected from the pit of battle, more beautiful than ever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, right, and this is so. I mean, timing wise, so the air date for this is January two thousand four. So. Right. So it's. Lord of the Rings has just finished being in movie theaters. Yeah. Right. It's very on brand and very of its time. Um, That's funny. All right. So before we get to Andrew, let's kind of finish up with uh, the Spike Dana sort of plot. And I don't know how much else there is to say other than that she... uh, mistakes him for somebody else and he knows that but by the time he realizes what's going on it's a bit late um and she's like drugging him and cutting his hands off um which you're sort of waiting I know they kind of fix it at the end they have him they have them like surgically reattached but you 
even that you're kind of waiting for the reveal of like oh that can't really have happened like that that's going to be a dream or a vision of some you know like you're waiting for it to be sort of undone in some way um mm. like even though it's fixed at the end it still feels like yeesh that's pretty gruesome to have your hands chopped off um sure. and i mean i guess from spike's point of view i the main thing i kind of focused on watching those scenes was his sort of realization um which will tie into his conversation with Angel of kind of his defense being purely kind of resting on how he didn't uh, hurt Dana specifically. Like, you know, you weren't one of the slayers that I attacked and killed and you, and I wasn't the one who did those horrible things to you. But that's not to say that Spike hasn't killed slayers or tortured and done horrible things to people it's just that it wasn't Dana um and I think him kind of realizing the flimsiness of that defense you know like you know I, I mean literally yes he did not he's not the one responsible for what happened to Dana but I think it comes uncomfortably close to things that he is responsible for um and he is kind of taking the moral high ground lately, you know, like sticking it to mm -hmm. Wolfram and Hart and kind of styling himself as hero of the people. And, and he is a soul, which he wanted and earned and worked for. And he's got all these sort of brownie points that he's a little bit boastful of. And yeah. this certainly knocks him down quite a few pegs to say, all right, you're face to face with all the things that you've done in the past. Um, not to this girl, but to other people exactly like her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, and, yeah, and, I, and it's a, it, I guess it's a good reversal, you know, after Spike swooped in and rescued Angel, Angel now, swoops in and rescues Spike at the end of this. So um, sure. so there's a little bit, not just morally leveling the playing field a little bit, but like in their actual actions as well. You know, because I think Angel's been feeling a bit useless lately. Um, so both kind of in terms of their moral stature, but also like just their heroics, their thrilling heroics. Um, it kind of like, we're kind of the, we're back to even ground again. Like neither of them is really better or worse than the other. They're both kind of equally terrible and equally heroic by the end of this episode. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so here's a question. Why does Spike show up here? Is this, is he still getting... We had a vision, uh, right? Didn't Lindsay get, I, I assumed. Well, right. But, I mean, we know that Lindsay's not actually getting visions. So, sure. like... But Lindsay's got, I, I assume, which is all that this is, and we know what happened to me assume, but 
um, my my first initial gut reaction guess is that Lindsay's got the beat on what's going on in LA. Like he's got contacts of some kind that right. are so informing maybe... him. And then he's supplying Spike with, so if he's not creating situations, he has some, some sort of information about where are their situations so that he can kind of present that to Spike as a vision. So the other thing I'll mention then too is that it's interesting that Angel doesn't sort of question why Spike is showing up. Right? There's no right. like it's cause you know as soon as Spike says the name Doyle, Angel's gonna be like, What now? Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like You got a so, vision from who? <laughs> yeah. But Angel I mean, and and I I don't mean to say this as anything inappropriate or or unlikely or whatever like angel is just always so annoyed by the appearance of spike that i feel like he it's perfectly it. le yeah. legitimate that he doesn't question why yeah. spike is there he's just annoyed by his actual presence right. he like when it when it comes to spike angel doesn't have rational thought right. for the most right. part like it's just you're spike and you're annoying me and right. he wants to sh want to show him up even to the point where like he does like stupid little things like stands in front of him, you know, when talking to the doctor and like, you know, and then Spike has to like move over and you know what I mean? Like those little like power move type things like where right. he's totally sort of like, yeah. well, <laughs> yes, today they would call them microaggressions, right? So, but yeah, those types of things right. of like the, the like little, you know, displaying your dominance kind of right. moves. Um, right. Right. It's like, yeah, you, his internal monologue is like, well, this is so typical. Of course, Spike's going to show up exactly in the, you know, in, in the, yeah. like, and the, yeah, the thought doesn't go further than that. It's just, it stops at how yeah, of frustrating this here. is. Yeah. Yeah. He's not surprised and who cares why or how, because it doesn't matter. You're here. Right. Um, but we know he's getting fed by Lindsay. Yeah. Who, yeah, I don't, I mean, it's probably not a stretch to think that Lindsay has his ear to the ground. He's clearly been spending the last couple of years. I forget exactly what season he leaves. Is it season two? Even? Like, yeah, like a long time ago. It's gotta be two or that, three, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's no later than three, but like, it's it's clear that he's been spending that time probably, I mean doing the tattooing thing like that took a little Getting time tattoos. um but like developing his own sort of network of yeah. which brings in the i mean and not to get too far down the like potential arc road because i mean maybe none of this is accurate but um maybe i'm just throwing you off um but that brings up the question of like oh wow so if it's not just Lindsay and eve then like who else is involved in their plot whatever that plot is we still don't know much about yeah it. yeah anyway just wanted to sort of bring that up of like like it's clearly not now whether Lindsay knows that this is like a potential slayer housed in the psych ward like i don't think we can go that far but certainly it make i think it's reasonable to think that like he heard about a situation mm 
mm-hmm. of presumed possession or whatever right. in the psych ward. And so, like, that's where he sends Spike. To right. Whether his source is just contacts or it's magical or whatever, like, he has some, you know, the same ways that Angel and Co. are getting their intel about situations. And and maybe other, I mean, we know that, like, um, Sark, was that his name? The, the pseudo watcher who was oh, Wesley's yeah Sirk 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 not Sark sorry Sark is from uh is that from Alias oh wow <laughs> anyway okay um Sirk yeah uh who was obviously working with them maybe there's other maybe maybe it's the same sources maybe they have other sources within Wolfram and Hart feeding them that info like right. it doesn't even necessarily have to be a different source of information yeah. right we're still kind of weeding out the uh the disloyal among the wolfram and hart employees so yeah um yeah so yeah um, i mean yeah I'm interested to see more about Lindsay, but that's kind of how i assumed spike got the info and um and that was kind of like i remember if, like the first watch kind of having that thought and that being like a nice little subtle moment where, Oh yeah, you do just kind of accept that spike is there, but there's that little reminder in the back of your head saying like, Oh, how did he know? Um, and you kind of enjoy the irony of the fact that angel doesn't really think about it hard enough to get there. Um, so, Mm -hmm. um, Uh, okay. We wanted to mention, I know you had a few notes about, like, allusions to other characters, um, like, both within sure. and I mean, out the, the Buffy-verse and, and kind of the Whedon-verse and everything. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah, allusions might be strong. I know I wrote that word down. Um. Certainly, I mean, we get the the quotes from, or the clear references to other slayers. Um, but beyond the words, also I wanted to point out sort of the look and the mannerism, especially I think in the opening teaser mm-hmm. of um, the, I think, the way that she's sort of portraying, um, and especially when she does like the stripes of blood down her face, is very reminiscent of the first Slayer. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think of like the white, mm-hmm. you know, sort of painted stripes that she has on her face, and obviously it's transposed here because it's, you know, now a Caucasian woman with blood stripes on her face. But um, I think that, and also just the sort of the way she moves and like the hair hanging down um, and that kind of stuff seems to imply like first Slayer stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also, so, uh, you know, again, thinking of timing, um, you know, where in, so we mentioned that this is coming out, uh, this is airing in January um, 20, or yeah, January 2004, um, Serenity, the, you know, follow up to the Firefly TV series, 
um, comes out a year and a half-ish later, in August 2005, mm-hmm. a little more than a year and a half later. Um, which means that they're very much in the process of like writing and uh, starting. Actually had planned to start shooting initially in October 2003, mm-hmm. so before this aired. Um, the actual shooting got delayed because of script changes and rewrites and stuff. Um, so it didn't start shooting till after in June 2004, but we're not that far away. And the story is clearly being fleshed out at this point. And there is some very River Tam-esque mm-hmm. moments, I feel like, with Dana in this episode, um, with some of the shots, um, especially like when she's holding that uh, like surgical saw or whatever it is that she picks up and like does like the like slow like turn of her head right, and like right. the hair again. Like there's that um, sort of iconic shot of River in you know, the sort of antechamber with all the reavers and like kind of turning and looking mm-hmm. and um, that kind of thing. So I feel, you know, I'm not saying for sure. Cause I mean, this is a different director, different writers. It's not Joss Whedon necessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much influence he had over the production here, but, and I mean, I'm obviously not the first person to compare river to a slayer in the past, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's just some very, interesting moments here where um you can see that kind of yeah. uh you know same characteristic there and and of course the sort of crazy aspect to it mm-hmm. um you know the psychological aspect obviously is there with river um even in in firefly not you know not just serenity but um right and then, and then also that idea of activation sorry i was just going to say oh, that's an interesting progression where you have river who has the kind of, you know, hearing, like, you know, talking strangely and and getting mixed up and and the kind of, like, crazy aspects of her character. But it's not until Serenity that she gets sort of activated as her kind of, you know, killing machine instincts um, sort of take over. So it's kind of, this is an interesting kind of bridge between the two. Um, which it does make you yeah. wonder, like, was this an inspiration for Joss thinking of how to develop River for the film? Um, like, and maybe that had been an idea that he wanted to do down the road eventually, but I could see this being like, oh, there were some interesting ideas. I could kind of build on that to riff with the character when we go back for the movie. Yeah, and right, and it is that, I mean... We do get flashes of there being more to River in that sort of way in Firefly. So I'm thinking of like war stories where they invade Niska's thing and she she like does the like quick look and has like the timing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So there's like very minimal thing, but there's very clear, like in Serenity, there's very clearly an activation aspect to it. Um, And also we get more about the actual it kind of is a kidnapping but you know it's like they send her away and then like the government does experiments on her right like Mm -hmm. it's not it's not quite the same but it is that idea of like being kidnapped and tortured and psychologically manipulated and then later 
like all of that sort of like repressed and comatose or not i mean river's not comatose but it's all like under layers of layers of psychosis um, mm-hmm. as the um doomed doctor in serenity says um you know but then later is sort of like brought to the service by this specific activation event mm-hmm. so um again like lots of differences there too but certainly enough parallels that you're like hmm, like yeah like maybe i mean i don't i don't know when this episode was actually being shot but certainly certainly like the timing of it makes it suspicious especially when you throw in the fact that uh serenity was delayed for some script rights <laughs> maybe after this episode was filmed it's like ooh, that would be a good idea right like <laughs> as long as we're delayed you know um or is that or the cause, the cause of, of the delay right? sure yeah cool um anyway yeah nice well anything else about dana um we're gonna talk about we can talk about her getting taken away by the group um as we kind of transition into andrew here um yeah in the last 10 minutes although i don't know that there's a ton to say about andrew sure Um, no, I mean, there's a lot of funny lines we could trade and repeat. Um, so, yeah, so he comes in and um, you can see who his new hero is by the way that he's styled himself. Um, you know, no longer going for the, like, super villain black leather coat spike look. Now he's he, he's a kind of watcher, apparently. Um, it's kind right. of self-proclaimed watcher. Watcher in training. Yeah, like yeah. tweed jacket, long kind of shaggy hair, smoking a pipe. Um, and, and his lunch bag with the little Union, Union Jack, Jack on, on it. Right, and like <laughs> chips or whatever he has, some British, British <laughs> snack food in there of some kind. Sure. Um, which he's brought all the way with him from England, I guess. Um, I mean, presumably, right? So... Uh, yeah, so he has a new, this is so in his kind of renounce, you know, renouncing of evil and, you know, fighting for the good now, he's, you know, always latches himself on to kind of, you know, who is his latest object of sort of hero worship, I guess. Um, and although he's thrilled to see Spike, um, as we kind of mentioned, he's very emotional and you know relieved to find that spike survived um and and, well, and, and and you still get his warped not at all related to reality version of events right, yeah of like we, yeah. we saved the world it was mostly us um yeah which i mean obviously buffy and all the slayers did but like i mean Spike has a somewhat legitimate claim there. Sure. Of like saving the day. Andrew not so much. does not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Andrew stood upstairs and watched Anya die. Right, right. Um, basically. Right. Andrew got I mean, saved by Anya. Yeah. Right, right. Well, that's what I mean. Like yeah. Like he survived it all because he had somebody else there kind of watching his butt. Um Yeah, right. so yes, Andrew um still sees the world through his strange video lens, you know, that doesn't correspond to 
um, you know, objective reality reality in any recognizable way. Um, Or at least not where he's concerned. Sometimes he can see other people. Like you said, you know, maybe he's, there's something truthful about his, you know, idolization of Spike. But, um, but he has to kind of throw himself in there um, and kind of latch his wagon onto Spike's. Um, yeah, so he's here. He's, uh, okay, so I know this is definitely something you wanted to, to talk about because um, I couldn't remember at first. Um, speaking of how characters know to go places, I, I couldn't remember for some reason why Andrew was even here. And you mm. reminded me that they call... Buffy and Giles and, and, and it's Giles sending his best man. Um, who, so, <laughs> yeah, so, he, so like, here's how, a question. Yeah. Is Andrew on Giles nerves? <laughs> and <laughs> That's like, a very good question. And this like, is a good, all right. I have a field trip. I have a mission for you, kid. Here's your first sort of test as junior watcher in training. Go deal with this for me. I I had that very question. Yes, I absolutely wanted to ask that or a version of it. Um, right, like when when like it's clear that Spike doesn't. I mean, the others don't really know Andrew. Although maybe after five minutes with him, they yeah. How much is there to know, really? Like, but <laughs> Spike obviously knows him to some degree, and you know, like, even, like, uses that phrase even sort of teasingly, like, you know, let the best man, or whatever, whatever he says. Um, you know, let's hear from the best man or something. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think I wrote it down exactly, but, um, yeah, I, like, I, you do wonder, especially knowing that he travels with, like, about 30 Slayers, <laughs> like like how how much is this really like andrew going off and like actually doing something on the other hand like he does effectively pull off a double cross Mm -hmm. and like i would have to say that he does learn more it seems like he's learned more and i mean we've seen watchers be the double crossers before like even giles do the thing that is right. necessary and and possibly even monstrous right like is andrew now kind of more dangerous in some ways than he ever was as part of the tree mm. I, I mean i would have to say like yes like i, mean, I don't i don't know if he's 82 percent more manly he might be like 12 or 13 percent more manly though um you know, like there definitely does seem to be. Yeah, that is an interesting I don't, I don't... trend of watchers and former watchers being people you have to like keep your eye on. Um, yeah, well, we've seen it in both Giles and uh, Wesley, certainly, yeah. and I mean other other watchers too. Like, I mean, you get the the watchers who kidnap Faith, right? right. Like, they're you know very like they're basically watcher assassins right? right like and yeah the watchers are not like unequivocally good right in a kind of way um even the good ones um even the good yeah. ones like have a pretty fuzzy gray area yeah 
um, which we know Angel doesn't like that word, right, but right. yeah. So I, like, right. We, we've managed to not go another episode without bringing that up. Um, but yeah, the trend continues. So yeah, no, that's a good point. Like once Andrew, cause he wasn't ever really an effective, like even as the kind of super villain, he couldn't really hide his intentions and his motivations that well. And he like, he was always very not innocent, blameless, but innocent, like transparent and naive and mm -hmm. someone you could kind of see through. And here, yeah, he makes it somehow makes it through the whole episode without giving away what their sort of ulterior motive is, which is for yeah. him, like quite an accomplishment, I think. Right. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think he's just like acting like his old self. I mean, I think he's still the way that he is. But yeah, like I, I would find, I would, it would be hard pressed for me to say that like he hasn't grown in some fashion or another, um, more watcher like or whatever. And I mean, so the other thing is, they said they called Giles and he sent his best man, but we also get the claim at least from uh andrew later that like his orders are coming actually from buffy mm. so mm -hmm. like right and i uh, and the slayers are there like this isn't just like right giles sending andrew to get out of his hair like there's there's clearly more yeah of a plan on buffy and giles together maybe yeah. you know on their part to have andrew be this sort of emissary or mm -hmm. or whatever um yeah no it's not it's not giles um calling the shots behind without buffy's input or her approval it seems to be that they have an agreed stance when it comes yeah. to their slayers and and wolfram and hart and angel's participation in that well and, and we've already seen giles acknowledge that buffy is the leader like that was the case in Buffy mm -hmm. you know the end of Buffy season seven yeah. like you know so we've already sort of seen Giles you know sort of giving up his claim to any kind of like generalship or whatever yeah. like that that's Buffy saying so like I don't yeah I don't get this I'm not saying that Andrew doesn't bug the hell out of Giles and that Giles wouldn't send him over here at least partly reason for that I, I don't get the sense, though, that that's, like, the primary reason for right. kind of all the things that we just talked about. I I do get the sense that, like, like this seems like a very important thing. It's telling, I think, that Buffy doesn't want to come herself mm -hmm. and confront Angel herself, maybe because she knows how that might run afoul between her and Angel. Mm -hmm. Like either because it could become more combative than it needs to be or because she might end up giving in to Angel mm -hmm. one way or one way or the other having Andrew be that spokesperson and you know with whatever you know 30 slayers as backup to like you know help enforce his words mm -hmm. there does seem to be a level of trust there that I don't think that we certainly did not see at all in season seven mm -hmm. where eventually we got to the point where, okay, we'll let Andrew have a sword, but like, 
certainly wasn't like letting him go off on his own leading right. you know a group of slayers like so yeah i don't i mean now there's a huge area there i think for like debate about like exactly how much do they trust him at this point sure. but but i think there's certainly i i don't think it's i don't think it's just a matter of like getting him out of our hair because i think they do see especially given that like um there is reference to buffy and and the others going around the world collecting these potentials from different parts of the world like that's what angel or that's what andrew's doing now mm-hmm. like it's like okay you know we might have we're in europe and wherever like well we need someone to go back to california to get this one that we missed we didn't know about before you know it, as andrew even says like you know she was an unforeseen you know uh whatever like uh i, I forget exactly the word but basically that you know no one could have predicted you know mm-hmm. that there was a slayer and a psych ward in la you know like that's just one of those things um so yeah i like given the importance of that sort of task and and all of that and the fact that he does actually end up executing it you know maybe not perfectly but like it works you know mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. Different than the Andrew we knew, sure, uh, sure. you know, a year ago or so. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, um, like, even, it's always with the kind of, his humor of, like, the kind of geeky references and everything. But even his line about, um, check the view screen, or I, I got 12 vampire slayers behind me and not one of them has ever dated you. Like, he actually lands right. a zinger. Like, yeah. not just, normally I feel like when Andrew is funny, it's at his own expense. But here it's like, you know, he's actually able to genuinely banter, can banter and like land one on Angel and say like, yeah. y- you know, you're not going to talk your way out of this. This is what's going to happen and we have a decision yeah. and you're going to like it. Um, so, yeah, no, there's definitely at least some elements of of him being trustworthy enough and changed enough to be worth sending on this mission. But there's also that like call center thing of like, you know, you're not talking to the person who made the policy. Right. And you're never going to, because there's like the call center, the customer support person is like the buffer right. between like yeah. you and the, actually talking to someone yeah it's easier to confront when it wasn't your decision and you say well it's out of my hands i'm just you know these are my orders and you know that's all you know and and no you can't talk to my supervisor right because what can you do at that point? right nothing right unless angel wants to like go to europe right and try to find buffy right which Which has its own maybe he does but like uh well, maybe he wants to, but, but like, the acknowledgement is we've got other stuff here right. that we have to deal with. Right. Um, and then so, you know, corresponding with all of that is a reiteration now of the fact that, like, they're not trustworthy. Angel and right. the executive team, the, the former Angel Investigations, 
is no longer trustworthy, no longer even necessarily fighting on the good side, at least to external experience, you know, uh, appearances. And I mean, we, we can talk about, I think, well, I mean, tell me if you disagree. I, I think we still like believe that the intentions are good, Mm -hmm. you know, insofar as intentions matter, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in something like the fight against evil, like I, I think we can believe that their intentions are still good, but that brings up the question of like, yeah, how, how accurate is it? Is the perception more accurate than their own beliefs? Mm -hmm. Like, have they been completely subsumed at this point? And, you know, you have to take conversations like the one that Gunn and Fred have right at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the episode about like, you know, Gunn saying like, you know, talking about making deals on the golf course and, you know, working the system before it works you and you know that kind of stuff where the funny thing is like fred sort of like questions it Mm -hmm. but like ultimately is just like goes along like she doesn't question it hard that's the thing is is gun is in some ways the most all in and so you'd be inclined to kind of worry about him the most like oh is he Mm -hmm. losing his moral compass but at the same time, that kind of makes him the least hypocritical of all of them. Like, at least he genuinely thinks, like, he, he, it seems that his intention, in so much as they matter, is the purest. Whereas the others are the ones that are going along with it despite their questions and their mm-hmm. reservations. So, you know, if Gunn is wrong, at least he's wrong sort of more honestly. Whereas, you know, you kind of could point at Fred and Angel for saying, well, if you're so worried about it, what are you doing here? Um, so they're, and I they would, are kind of getting into, again, the gray areas, but in different ways. Like, not everybody's finding the same path into the moral gray area. Sure. And I, and I would put Wesley in the same boat as Gunn. We kind of talked about right. Who's more who's more willing up, to compromise and be sort of which he was tactical we, and yeah. As we just said, like yeah. as a watcher, right. he was oh, he's already, like, I live like, in the gray area. This is like right compared to season well, three. This is like a cakewalk, you know. Sure. And and we talked about how, you know how when they showed up at Spike, it was like other than their skin tone, like they were kind of in indistinguishable, right, right. you know, like. Um, right yeah right but like for Angel who's maybe the one who's the most uncomfortable with their situation I think it's it's a blow to have Buffy say you know via Andrew we're no longer on the same side um and and I guess so so the question so because I don't I don't even know if I have a clear answer to this, but the question becomes, so does his giving up prove or disprove that assumption? Like, because the, so the reason not fighting Andrew on not right. Not fighting Andrew and the Slayers is that, does that show that he, he actually agrees with Bubby and is letting them go without a fight? Or is he like proving to Buffy that like, by letting them go, he's still on the side of good. Because, like, if he truly believes that, like, keeping Dana is the right thing to do, 
But then there's also like, well, but we do have this other stuff to take care of. Is Does that mean the other stuff is like more important? I, so it, there's kind of like, I feel like there's two ways to read that is kind of just what I'm trying to get at. And like, I'm not sure like either one is clear cut, like yeah. the good decision because like. I saw it more as him deferring i mean he's forced to for one like and and he doesn't fight back you're right but like like maybe he would have sort of argued strongly that dana staying with them was the right thing to do but i kind of see it as him conceding that when it comes to slayers buffy can trump him in that like it's not worth getting into a battle because at the end of the day slayers are under her her view and as much as he might like to keep dana with them that's he's picking a battle there so i don't know that he necessarily he might agree or disagree that taking dana away is a wise decision but i don't think he disagrees that it's not at the end of the day i think buffy like he he kind of agrees that it's buffy's decision to make sort of like, if it was, like, maybe he would have had a battle if it was, like, really justified. But I don't think he feels like it is. And not because it's not important, but because, like, it's not his purview. I don't know. We don't, he doesn't say any of that, so I'm completely Yeah, no, and I, I think, and that's what it comes down to. I don't think. My only point is that I think there's like multiple legitimate ways to like read that. Sure. And, and I think it's not entirely clear of like the decision that he makes. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't seem clear to me whether the decision that he makes proves or disproves Mm. the thesis of you've become untrustworthy. Mm. Mm Yeah. At least from an external perspective. Again, like I think internally and, you know, we see the struggle and we see all of that. Like I think we as the sort of viewers who know Angel and team can believe at least the intention is still there yeah. of to do good. But I think I think there's still like the fact that like he chooses to go back to Wolfram and Hart, like rather than maybe do what he feels is right could mm-hmm. be seen as a confirmation of like, okay, he's more interested in this sure. law firm and which is still kind of facilitating some evil stuff, even if it's like maybe putting a kibosh on the most evil stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. Yeah. So. Just mm-hmm. a thought. Yep. All right, so we should talk about the ending with Angel and Spike a little bit. Yeah, um, I don't think we need to go too long on it. Um, Just, I I mean, kind of what I wanted to say, I kind of said earlier about how it, it, Angel and Spike kind of end up on more even ground than they've been all season, I think, like understanding each other a lot more and... um, they've been both kind of knocked off their pedestals of thinking of themselves as kind of 
the true hero vampire with the soul. Like you're a pretender and I'm the one who really has, you know, is doing the right thing and earning it and has, you know, pure intention and all those sorts of things. Each of them has kind of had that disillusioned somewhat. Um, so like you kind of started by saying like, there's no rational thought when it comes to the, the other one. They can't, but like in here, like they actually like have an actual conversation where they mm-hmm. seem to understand each other, you know, where Spike says some things about how he feels and Angel kind of agrees and says like he understands in so many words, you know, um, that has to be the most civil conversation they've ever had to each other. Um, or one of them, like, you know, they're actually able to relate over something rather than kind of argue about how different they are. Um, so just kind of wanted to note that. And then the kind of end reversal of, uh, she's one of us, she's a monster. Well, she's an innocent victim. Well, so were we. So, you know, kind of this wistful acknowledgement that they both were human once upon a time and, you know, were the victims of something before they became the monsters themselves. That's all I had. Did you have anything else for Angel and Spike? Nope. I think that sums it up pretty well. Cool. I mean, I guess the question becomes here on out, and not, and, you know, we'll wait and see, is does that moment, like, last solidify <laughs> anything? Sure. Yeah, like, or does it, or or is it just like a, well, I just had my hands chopped off, you know. Right. Whatever. Um and also, we know another character who had a hand chopped off. His, he's called Doyle now. Right. Lindsay. Right. Mind blown. Just throwing that out there. That's right. Um, yeah. Anyway, so all of that said, which now, now you're thinking like, wait, have we seen Lindsay's hand since we since he's I'm returned? literally sitting here like, going, wait a minute. Yeah, didn't have like, <laughs> like a hook it, or anything. <laughs> yeah, does he have like a prosthetic or what's going mm. on? Um, hands. Yeah, now, now you have to go. Well, we'll have to ask Eve about that one. But um, I mean, yeah, it might be magical, but I don't know like what they're made of. Sure. Um, and on that note, we should talk about the education of a magician. I.e. Jonathan Strange and the Mm Tarot, episode three. Um, So probably, (coughs) I feel like the, so the two big parts of this episode are with Arabella and Lady Pole Mm. and kind of their different interactions. Although like a lot gets pulled into that because like most of the neural stuff is sort of tied to that as well as like some of the Childermas stuff. Mm -hmm. pretty much all of the children has stuff. Um, so like, there's like that whole piece um, with some sort of like 
tangential stuff with Arabella and the gentleman, mm -hmm. which kind of still surrounds yeah. her stuff with Lady Pole. Right. Um, and then there's like Strange in Europe. Right. Well, you know, Strange on the continent, I should say, because um, the entire show is in Europe. Um, Brexit doesn't take England out of Europe. Uh, and certainly that didn't happen back then anyway. But uh, yeah, so kind of those are sort of the two broad divisions. Um, but yeah, let's first talk about Arabella and Lady Pole, which I mean, so initially we get like the continued sort of visits, right? Mm -hmm. Of uh, Arabella to the, to the, to the pole residence. Um, and I guess even before that, we get um, sort of Lady Pole like waking up after, presumably after one of her night dances um, at Lost Hope, um, waking up and sort of having, I don't know if epiphany is the right word, but this idea that like, if she can't talk, then maybe she'll try to, mm. uh, so the uh what it whatever it is she's trying to say of course i mean it's still symbolic right so like even though she even though we can sort of like understand what her cross stitching and tapestry making you know is you know because we know what's going on like it seems unclear e even though it might be a reasonably good uh right. expression yeah. of that it's still pretty opaque to uh, right. It just looks Arabella. like nonsense to Arabella. Yeah. Um, right. Like, who, like, who, don't you see? There's me with the rose, and there's you know Stephen's got a crown, and then that's the king over there, and like obviously, like her frustration of like you don't get it. <laughs> right. And then like telling her, you know, telling Arabella to, like, write to her husband about it. Right. And it's like, oh, like, yeah. what do I say right. about all of this? Right. Um, right. It's kind of yeah. simultaneously extremely clear to us. And you can also understand why it reads as absolute gibberish to somebody who wouldn't know what these things are referring to. Right. Well, and especially if you already think she's not all there. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's the mashed potato moment of like, mm -hmm. this is important. This, you know, this means something. And it doesn't mean anything to anyone right, right. except the person look, you know, who's creating it or whatever. Um, so also there's the, um, the conversation around like, I mean, briefly brought up of like, Arabella saying like, oh, you know, doesn't your husband like help you or please you or give you like a sense of, I don't know, being. <laughs> and I mean, Lady <laughs> Pole's pretty forthright there of yeah. like, you know, what did my husband ever do? He couldn't even, which I mean, again, we know what she's referring to as far as, you know, the balls. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, her dancing at Lost Hope every night and feeling constantly tired and all of this. And you know, her, her expression that like, what did he ever do? Like he didn't, you know, make the dancing of a song, like one second shorter or whatever. I forget exactly. Right. Right. Um, right. But just that idea of like, my husband's love what, has never done me any good. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like what does that, what does that have to do with anything? And 
Um, which is, you know, of course, like, obviously at this sort of time, like there is, I mean, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they have money and, and land and all of that. So certainly it's not like Lady Pole's necessarily at home doing the cooking and stuff. Although she, yeah, I mean, she's at home doing the, you know, tapestry work, I guess. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, there is that idea of like, yes, the, the women are there to sort of entertain the men when they're not doing their manly things and all of that. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's sort of those um, underlying things being said but also like Arabella's comment of like oh well I guess I'm the one who does more of the uplifting and mm. you know Jonathan is you know very troublesome and like you know we've seen him obviously being very moody and stuff and I mean honestly it's not entirely clear why she's with him and mm -hmm. These are maybe, you know, moments where she wonders maybe too, like, even though she's sort of saying, quote unquote, the right thing, at least from like a sort of societal perspective and trying to, and even maybe like just trying to encourage Lady Pole because like, she knows she's kind of like suicidal and stuff. Mm -hmm. So like, it's not even necessarily, you know, just trying to like give her something to look forward to it you know whether it's her husband or not like i don't even think that like arabella is trying to make some commentary on like the status of women in their society or anything right. she's just trying to say like doesn't your husband make you happy and he's like, no he doesn't like right. what has he ever done um right. and but that that also highlights i think then arabella's own maybe feelings that she hasn't sort of been thinking about or trying not to think mm -hmm. about, which we see, you know, her writing these letters and not getting any replies back. Mm -hmm. And it's not that like, we, as we see, it's not that Jonathan isn't writing to mm -hmm. her. It's that she's not receiving the letters. Right. Right. Um, right. And I think that is a, a, a difference a bit in that, um, like, yeah, Arabella does kind of subvert the, the, gender expectation there of of well like he doesn't save me from stuff I kind of am the one to be the kind of rock and you know all those sorts of things that you wouldn't expect of her um or that you know society doesn't expect of her but but I think like where she is trying to be encouraging to Lady Pole is that I think there is genuine love between for whatever reason, whether or not he has earned it in any sort of, you know, social way, um, there seems to be genuine love and affection between Arabella and Jonathan, um, which is like why sure. she's upset when she doesn't get letters. And, and I think it is what she tries to use to like uplift Lady Pole. Like, you know, maybe there's, is there, is there this person who can kind of, be there for you despite all these terrible things that are happening. And yeah, the response is like, no, like that's never done anything for me. Um, yeah. Well, and, and so I think the interesting thing too, is that because you could have a very like straightforward, you know, kind of like, 
yes, Walter Pohl, Lord, you know, Lord Walter, Walter Pohl is a big, important man who doesn't pay any attention to his wife. But that's not true either. Sure. Right? Like, so, so it's not even, like, I, you don't even get the sense that, like, it's not like, how, however Lady Pohl feels, it's not that her husband is ignoring her or, you know, ex- doing, putting some kind of expectations on mm-hmm. her that are like untoward or, you know, out of hand or anything. He at least claims to be, and I think we believe him. I mean, I think we've seen him treat her with affection and try to give her what he can give her. Like, like he says to Arabella, like, do you think I'm not doing everything that I can? I've tried. Yeah. Like I've, I've tried to like every, literally everything displeases or upsets her or, or whatever, you know, whether it's bells or whatever, like he tried to stop the bells for her and he, you know, has tried taking her out, but people, you know, seem to distress her in some way. And, um, you can't even like leave her alone too long or she tries to hurt herself and like that kind of thing. And I don't think given the rose at her mouth, I don't even think that lady pole is necessarily like, like, I think it could come across as like blaming him mm-hmm. in some way, but I don't, I don't think that's the case either. I don't, right. I don't think she's like saying like, Oh, what has my husband ever done for right. me? The low down, dirty drunk, right. you know, who doesn't like whatever. She's just saying like, he literally, what good is having a husband? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's more like he's impotent to do anything right. rather right. than he's actively like making my life more difficult. Right. Right. And the, um, yeah, like he, I, he, he's, I think she's being very practical in that moment. Like, right. not that love isn't a good thing, but like, what's it going to do for me? How is it supposed to get right. me out of this situation in any sort of meaningful way? Yeah. And I think like the missing element, which nobody gets clearly, is the magic. That there's not there's right. not a, a, a personal or a social way to address what's happening and and like arabella almost gets there like there's the one line where she's like she wasn't mad before the magic like so they've been treating it as though she's mad and there's no magical cure for it and i think what arabella almost kind of lights on is what if the magic is the source of the madness which nobody's really got there yet except for the people who already know about it and aren't inclined to right. say anything like Nora, right yeah. but like arabella and walter pole haven't got they haven't figured that out yet right well and even like when when arabella is trying to articulate that uh is it walter pole who she's talking to where where mm-hmm. he's like yeah well she was dead before like right. like not thinking well yeah okay obviously but like before she was dead she wasn't mad right, right? like right. like there was some like so it, the question is like Okay, either it was, you know, going, you know, dying and then coming back to life. Like, is that what made her mad? And if so, like, is it the magic that brought her back to life? Like, there's just like one or two steps removed from like making that conclusion Mm -hmm. of like, like you were saying, like she she almost gets there, but doesn't doesn't quite know how to articulate it, Um, and also sort of gets cut off by. 
Walter mm-hmm. in sort of the conclusion of like, well, before you know she was alive, she was dead. Right. <laughs> like so or mostly dead anyway. Right. Um <laughs> it's uh, a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Yeah. Uh yeah, so anyway, yeah, I just that I find that conversation interesting because it I think it does highlight Arabella's own frustrations with not receiving the letters and, mm-hmm. and maybe questioning. I don't, I mean, I don't know if she ever fully questions like whether or not Jonathan loves her. I think where that comes in then is with her moments with the gentleman mm. who sort of prods and maybe sets some, you know, burrs in her mind to sort of nag her a little bit of, you know, like saying things like, you know, when he when he comes home, you know, Jonathan will be bored after having tasted war. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, war is so exciting and romantic and, you know, whatever, like coming home to sort of the mundanity of home life is not going to be not good enough for him. Right. Which, I mean, I don't know that I would have thought that Arabella was thinking of that at all. Like had the gentleman not suggested that mm-hmm. to her. And I don't even know how much that suggestion actually means anything to her, except that it happens right after, I think right after that conversation with Lady Pole, right? Like mm, it's yeah. the conversation with Lady Pole of like, what has my husband ever done for me? And Arabella kind of like realizing, well, mm-hmm. you know, I do more kind of in that way for him than he does for me. Right. And then the gentleman presumably overhearing that conversation right um because we see him in other contexts where he's sort of listening in um you know coming in to say like oh you know your husband's gonna find your life to be boring when he returns from war Mm -hmm. um and so maybe just kind of like where she hadn't necessarily been thinking that like now it can be it becomes maybe a worry that's eating at her Mm -hmm. a little bit Right, right. Um, right, planting those seeds. Sure. Right. So we see a couple of... So that, so there's that first conversation where, like... It's, like, just like Lady Pole. Like, she just has, like, herself in, like, the bed with the rose, right? And then, like, the next time she comes... Next time Arabella comes over, it's, like, there's, like, this whole tapestry, right. like, done. Um but still doesn't sort of figure out. I don't think there's anything really from that conversation. Mm-hmm. But then there's the next time she comes over is is after Lady Pole hurts herself. Right. Um, which is... Um, that's after Children Mass comes in and, like, takes the... Right. I was trying to think of uh, what, what precipitated what it. The and it's the stealing is. of... Of the tapestry. Of the tapestry. Right, right. And, and the realization that there are, like... Like, it's no longer just that, like, she can't say what she wants to say or or is prevented. But there's, like, active forces out there. Right. Like, right. working there's against There's sabotage her. and... Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, I, does she... She doesn't know that it's Sugar Match, right? Like, she just comes in and yeah, sees I don't think the, so. the tapestry gone. Yeah. Um... And we'll, we'll talk about Tilder Mass in a bit, but um, just noting that, like, his sort of ability to sort of sense 
magic and that like mm-hmm. there's something about this tapestry that seems magical in and of itself almost right yeah i mean um, maybe we should wait on i did want to ask that like do you think because i don't think it's clear to me from this show and i don't remember what it is in the book if they say one way or the other um there's a mention of the tapestry in the letter that Norrell reads and he doesn't get it right like when he's saying oh like which is why he says she's writing to him about dresses like these stupid things that like you know these wives write to their husbands at war so do you think that he reread it and gave Childermas instructions to like go see what that tapestry is about, or do you think he said to Childermas, "Just go take a look around"? And it's just Childermas's instinct and discernment that kind of draws him into the tapestry to say, "There's something important here." Right, because there, so because it does kind of cut off, right? Like he, because Childermas is like. Hey boss, I'm feeling uneasy about this right, whole like, letter stealing thing. Tell me thing. what you're worried about, and maybe I can help. Which it doesn't seem like. Well, there's that question too. I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but there's also the question of like, what is it that Childermas is actually uneasy about? Because I don't think he's actually uneasy about like the stealing of letters. Sure. Like he's perfectly fine with that. It's more about like what's the reason that we're doing. It? It, right. It's more like he just wants to be let in on Norrell's thought process. Right. Like we can steal stuff if that's, if yeah, that's the right thing to do. But I, I'd like to know what the reason is. Like he wouldn't just do it for yeah. no reason. Like if you're going to have me breaking and entering and, you know, and stealing mail, um, can you at least give me a good reason for it? And like expects to be, let into that level like he doesn't just want to be told what to do and left at that he wants to know what the worry is um so yeah i wasn't sure if you felt one way or the other like is there something just drawing him to the tapestry or has norrell said something about the fairy that he then recognizes what the tapestry sort of means based on what norrell's told him well and so that's, yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to say because, like, I mean, we know that Norrell can, like, see stuff, but, like, also, like, we don't get, we don't see, like, Norrell, like, peering into his water basin, like, between reading the letters and giving Children Mass a job. So my sense is that he's sending Childermass over to just like, hey, can you just go look around and see if there's anything kind of weird going on over mm-hmm. there? Um, without nest, I maybe he mentions the tapestry, like, yeah, and what is this tapestry thing, like, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't, I, I get the sense that it's sort of vague, and that when Childermass sees it, right, there seems to be something about it, and. Like, right again, he he gets the mashed potato. He doesn't know what it means. He just recognizes it and says, "This means sure. something." Like these mashed potatoes are radioactive, right, right. Um, or whatever. Right, like there, there's a <laughs> that we're destroying that analogy. Um, I mean, we've already seen that Childermass is sensitive 
right. and possibly can do some magic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we are confirmed that he at least has some ability to actually perform magic. Yeah. But even again, like the whole like water glass thing, like is he doing magic or is he detecting magic? Like it's not clear. Like there, like there's a thin line there of like, is is he actually doing the magic or is he just holding up the water that in some way is able to like let him see magic, which isn't actually him doing magic, but maybe it's sort of borderline. Mm. Uh, and again, like, is it like with the tapestry, like, not that like you would necessarily think that Lady Pole is wittingly doing magic, but there's something about her depiction of the gentleman mm. and lost hope and all of that, which maybe taps into the sort of magic that's around mm-hmm. and gives it enough of a, you know, low grade radiation right, that right. Childer Mass can detect with his built in Geiger counter. Well, um, and it's like later when he gets sort of knocked over by it, she's not doing anything magical in that moment. She's just sort of walking down the street, getting ready to assassinate Norrell. So I I kind of take it as like her very presence is detectable. And like if she's making a tapestry, then some of that gets sort of rubbed off onto that he can and it's like she's down the street and he gets you know completely knocked over so either she's very you know now I'm thinking of smells like elves either she smells very strongly of magic or he's hypersensitive to it or both like you know there's just like her very presence is detectable to him, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I, I guess that kind of makes sense that if he's just looking for things that are suspicious, that the tapestry would have some sort of whiff about it. You know, something yeah. is is coming off of it that lets him know that it's important. Um, it's like that idea, like in like forensics or whatever, where you have like, like transfer of like you know like a piece of cotton from like mm-hmm. the seat that they were sitting in in the car or whatever or, or the other way around like like a you know a sweater gets snagged on the door and like it leaves behind like just that little tiny bit right. of fiber that they can use to i mean at least on tv shows they can use to track down the exact right. you know piece of clothing that right. you know right. it came from um, right, or it's like like a. I'm almost thinking like perfume that it like lingers, like you know sure. maybe she is the one that's sort of the origin of it, but it's like the it sticks around in the right. the things that she has well, and the places she's been, and and she's not even the origin of it, but it's strongly on her because she spends every night. Well, at Lost yes, Hope. right. Like yeah, that's where yeah. it's coming from initially. And so it's not that she's magical or can do magic, but it's that right. She's saturated. through her through her visits to Lost Hope. There's some kind of yeah, like aura or whatever, which then yeah, maybe can get transferred to other things, especially if she spends enough time with them or whatever, which she does with the tapestry. But yeah, um, yeah, definitely because so. And we've talked about. 
um, we talked about Segundus uh, being able to sort of detect mm -hmm. when Strange is doing magic and kind of get sucked in. There's a very similar thing with Childermass mm -hmm. here, where it, again, like it's not clear whether he can actually do magic, but certainly seems to be able to mm -hmm. detect it in, in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, so we went off on a children's mass tangent. Going back to Lady Paul, as one does. Um, going back to Lady Paul, though, so uh, the tapestry gets taken. She sees it and hurts herself in a fit of despair, apparently. Um, Stephen and Arabella find her, kind of bind her up and call the doctor, call Walter. And, mm -hmm. You know, um, Lady Pole gets put on mandatory strap-down bed rest, right. I guess. Um, right. Here's our other Mad Woman in the Attic reference. Like, we're right, just going to sure. live up here. This one even more literally. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, in the upper bedroom where she can't hurt herself and, yeah, just sort of stays there. So it's interesting to me, sort of the, the, I mean, I know that people have mood swings and, you know, there's bipolar disorder and that kind of thing, but there's like the, you know, she tries to hurt herself, but then there's like, you know, presumably be, we don't get her articulating it, obviously, but like, presumably she hurts herself because like the one chance that she had to, you know, sort of explain herself has now been taken away. Right. Um, when she sees Arabella come and then go leave again, she does say to Stephen, like, well, maybe it's better, like, that she doesn't come anymore mm -hmm. or whatever, right? Like, there is that. And, I mean, obviously Stephen's enforcing orders. Um, yeah. Via, via Walter, but that are really from Norrell, who says, like, it would be better if they didn't have contact anymore. Yeah. Um, right. These these women exercise each other's emotion. So right. probably better to not let them talk too much. Right. Those women, that's all they do right. is talk. Um, of course, they're talking. They're right. Um, right. What, they, what are you worried that they're going to talk about? That's the real question, right. you know? Uh, right. And there's a very so, strong, like, especially in the in the Norrell visit to, what well, like to Walter and then to Lady Pole, Norrell's, you know, the, it's a very kind of Me Too sense of like, <laughs> especially the when when it's like the threats, the like implied. It's in your both your best interest not to say anything, you know. Like, yeah, you, uh, you know. I I don't know if I wrote down like exactly what he said, but um, no, just that like, oh, it may cause you further harm, implying that that's like he wants it to sound like concerned, right. like you're just going to get yourself worked up and you'll just be more sick. But we know and she knows and everybody like, you know, in the audience knows that what he means is, you know, things could get a lot worse for you. So you better keep your mouth shut. Um, you know, 
that kind of there's the the threat behind it where coming forward is worse than keeping quiet about what's been done. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Um, and Paul, like that's so, not that it's not quite the same because it's not really a threat, but there's also that same kind of thing with Walter Pohl mm. in talking to Arabella about not saying anything to Jonathan of like, you know, you made a promise and I expect you to abide by that promise. Like there's not really a threat there, but it's kind of like that, like questioning your integrity if you don't mm -hmm. stay quiet, basically. Um, yeah. Which, you know, again, like, I mean, he's a lord. Like, is there, there's certainly a power dynamic there. Cause like the strangers aren't like, they have money, mm -hmm. they have some money and, and, you know, are well off compared to most people, but they're not, you know, landed, like, or, you know, or they're not at least, um, they might have land, but they're not like what, you know, part of the. Right, know, like the uh, aristocracy or something. Yeah. Right. So. Right. It's not, you know, it's not lord strange and lady strange it's like yeah they're they're right. at a slightly lower level socially um so there is sort of a power dynamic there too of like maybe maybe lord uh pole doesn't have to make a direct threat but like just by you know expressing his expectation of uh you know mrs strange you know there's sort of an implied threat there of of what the nobility could do to someone who mm -hmm. maybe uh you know what's the word you know says something uh right out of defamatory turn. Yeah. against you know the the whole uh household right um which again, like you'd like to think, like, hey, aren't we all friends here? But there is that potential for the power dynamic. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe not as outright as Norrell's sort of threat is, but certainly I think there's implications there of, you know, I expect this, and mm -hmm. as as a nobleman, you need to respect what I say and all of that. Um, yeah, which just, I mean, it is all about just keeping things quiet. And, I mean, talk about gray areas. Like, there are both noble and ignoble reasons why one might do that. Because I think Arabella very much, you know, wants her friend not to be looked upon as, you know, someone who's sick or, you know, crazy or whatever. And, I mean... Um, there's also like the the creepy draw light aspect to it, mm. right? Of like the, I'm not going to say anything because there's clearly someone like draw light out there who wants to take advantage of this in some way, and she doesn't want her friend to like be used in that way right. either. So, um, sort of like multiple, um, not competing, but uh, like almost like augmenting, <laughs> you know, reasons why she would stay quiet. Um, yeah. Right. 
So we've talked a lot um, about Lady Pole and Arabella. Any, so, I mean, I guess sort of the final bit then. So it's unclear to me then how Lady Pole gets away from her bonds. Yeah, I guess we don't like, really, I mean, I guess she just fiddles with it long enough for, I don't know, like we don't really yeah, get a or, very good depiction of how she manages that. Or does Stephen help her in any way? We don't necessarily know. Right, or the gentleman. Or the gentleman could, um, perhaps. Um, sure. Yeah, like yeah, maybe there's so, a loosening of the straps that the gentleman can kind of in, contrive. That, like, if she works at it, she can kind of free herself. Maybe not even realizing that she has some help. Um, yeah. So she gets out, gets a gun, mm -hmm. goes with the clear intent to murder Nora. Yep. Or at least shoot him. I mean, presumably uh, she's going to kill him. That, like, that seems to be a reasonable sure. uh, interpretation of events. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think she's just going to, like, maim him a little. Right. Um, and it doesn't seem like she's going to th to say, like, help me or I'll shoot you. It seems like, no, she's got one reason. Like, it's not like a, if worse comes to worse, I've got backup scenario. It's like, she's like, it seems like this is an assassination attempt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Childer Mass seems to detect it. Mm -hmm. Um, you get sort of draw light in the cells kind of in the background looking at him oddly. Um, right. Yeah, it, so he, he detects it, isn't quite sure exactly what um, is going on, but, you know, goes out and sort of pieces it together with his little glass of water light, mm -hmm. uh, his little Galadriel's file, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, jumps in front of the bullet mm -hmm. for Noro, which I guess is an act of heroism, but one has to wonder why. Does he jump in front of it, or is he just sort of in the way? I mean, he's certainly trying to get the gun away from Noro. Like, I'm not saying he doesn't. He clearly cares to save Noro's life. I didn't necessarily read it as a... I'm taking the bullet for I, you kind of situation. So, I mean, the, the obvious parallel here is um, Jeremy pushing Strange out of the mm. way of the cannonball. Mm -hmm. And I I agree that it's not quite the same as that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like he, I mean, he he intervenes at least and ends yeah. up getting shot. Yeah, yeah. Whether, it's, whether it's like, I'm taking a bullet for you. I, I mean, that is kind of how I implied when I just said it. So maybe well, it's not quite maybe that. Maybe there's but more of that than I had given him credit for. I don't know. Well, I, yeah. So I think in the same way that we might wonder why Arabella loves Jonathan, <laughs> we can wonder why Children Mass loves Nora. Right. Like, or at least right. is, is so devoted to him. Right. 
uh, as to try to save his life. Um, to the point where at least he puts himself in the right. realm of possibly yeah, getting shot, sure. even if he doesn't, you know, directly jump in front of the bullet, I guess, you know, in the way that I sort of implied before. Um, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. Like, I kind of struggle with, like, why Tilden Mass is so devoted. I mean, I guess other than he seems to have some magical talent and neural is if not you know now no longer the only at least the first of the modern magicians Mm -hmm. um i it's hard to see beyond that like what his uh yeah motivation might actually be yeah and i think like you know i think that's a good question to kind of ponder because it's only like what episode three or whatever and I think up until this point that seems like a good enough motivation but like going forward where we children mass now kind of has greater insight into spoiler alert he survives um going into like him knowing more fully Norrell's sort of moral bankruptcy like I think just mere proximity to the resources that Norrell has might have been good enough motivation up to this point. But as of this episode, you do then have to kind of say, all right, all right, children mess. Like really like, is this the guy who, you know, like why would you kind of keep respecting him after this? Um, You know, both with like, the whole taking a bullet for him thing, but also just like he has you now stealing things and breaking into houses and doing all sorts of his dirty work to kind of keep secret a thing that he did that was bad. So there's many reasons I think for children as to question his loyalty. Yeah. Um, We talked a little bit about Arabella and the gentleman. I like so. There's the um, we already brought up like the the moment where he says that you know Jonathan will be bored when he comes back from the war. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else from that conversation? I mean, that's kind of the key phrase to me. I think of what the gentleman's um, trying to sort of imply there. I think the only other thing is his offer of exchange. Like, remember we talked about with Steven, he kind of... Well, that's next, right? Oh, okay, right? sorry. Like, that's, the, that's when they're sitting there and, and after... Okay, yeah, sorry, um, I forgot we were distinguishing between those scenes. So, yeah. Well, I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything from that first scene. So, yeah, so, yeah, so the, the, next, the next time we see him and Arabella together, it's after Lady Pole has just harmed herself and... Um, Walter Pole is gets called in, and uh, the, you know she's sort of sitting. On, uh, Arabella is sort of sitting on the bench in the hallway, you know, crying and and you know sort of wiping her tears uh, with her handkerchief. And yeah, the gentleman shows up and sort of makes this offer of a quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know I could, you know, make her not crazy again if you know you give me something and 
he doesn't specify what it is. And of course, um, I mean, Arabella obviously puts the, uh, you know, her response in terms of, you know, like, you're a monster for not doing whatever you can within your power. Um, and I mean, I think she's right. Like, I don't like, that's perfectly fine way to put it. But I also think like, like we've seen her, like with her handling of draw light and whatever, like she's, she obviously is good at reading what the sort of underlying Mm -hmm. things are. And I mean, I don't like, we don't know what she thinks the, uh, gentleman might be wanting like it wouldn't be a stretch to think that maybe he's seeking a sexual favor Mm -hmm. of some kind Mm -hmm. or whatever she seems to you know be wary and Mm -hmm. cognizant of something along those lines i mean i doubt she's thinking like oh he'll whisk me away to his fairy take me to fairy yeah 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 you know castle and you know make me dance every night or whatever like i i doubt she's thinking along those lines but certainly she's thinking that like whatever this quid pro quo is right. is not going to be a good thing for her and you know yeah. her relationship with her husband right. <laughs> per se um, right and that's an extension of kind of the same thing of he wants something that's a violation that's sort of inappropriate and that would right. kind of enslave her to him which is all true, even if she doesn't realize exactly, like, right. what he wants right. is, like, a very strange, magical version of that. But it's, ultimately, there's a similar kind of motive. Right, without knowing the the precise nature of what he's going to ask. Right, she, she knows that it, She's not going to agree There's to all it, kinds of like, red flags certainly. over that, yeah. Yeah, um, which she picks up on, which is not usual, I feel like, in... I mean, certainly that sort of thing fooled Norrell, right? Like, I mean, he made a deal with the gentleman. Right, um, and Stephen. And he, you know, when he's he like, you know, come with me to my kingdom. Thank you, sir. You know, like, <laughs> Stephen's Although, politeness overpowers, you know, his... You know. Yes, I think with Stephen, I do think that, yeah, it's more that servant's reply right. than, like, it's not necessarily ascent in the same way Mm-hmm. which we'll talk about Stephen because like there's there's the slavery aspect mm-hmm. and like the 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 not officially a slave but still a slave right kind how of free is he goes through. how free is Stephen to say no when he's asked right. something yeah right and is it his sort of servants training that right. gets him in trouble and sort of binds him to the gentleman rather than any kind of actual like free will right. ascent of right. you know as a trade of like goods or services or whatever right and um, arabella has a better sense of what she's being asked and and has more yeah. freedom to stand up for right. herself and say no right. yeah and and is also i think secure enough in her own knowledge of who she is and and her sort of place and what she does just in general like i mean we get that sense even early on with her with you know her sort of initially refusing jonathan you know as a husband and all of that is like no you need to find a occupation first and you know figure out what it is you're gonna do and then we can talk marriage like 
she has a practicality that maybe mm-hmm. others don't like you know maybe uh which might be part of her attraction to you know to the gentleman um or, or part of the gentleman's attraction to her i mean um you know maybe mary the maid wouldn't have that same sort of you know I mean, maybe she'd be more like Stephen in that sense of just like she almost has to say yes to whatever request is made of her. But like, yeah, even just thinking outside of that, like, you know, I don't get the sense that all people would have the same kind of resolve or dedication. Like, there are certainly people, I and even like Strange early on, who's like desperate for fairy magic and is like making all of these concessions for like, I didn't drink as much this week. Right. Like, like you get the sense that he might totally take up uh, the gentleman's offer, Mm -hmm. like sort of at face value of like, Oh, okay. You can do this for something that I'll do for you. Sure. Why not? Like, yeah. um, She, she has a sort of level headedness that's regardless of, you know, gender or whatever, like is very, uh, pointed Mm -hmm. in uh her interactions with the gentleman um even refusing like to take his the handkerchief that he like offers Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff um at the auction right right um which she never turns and looks at him right like it's just to her that's just sort of a right you know hand you know offering her something so she doesn't probably even connect the two events which i didn't really think about before but right um, yeah, yeah, it is kind of conspicuous that she doesn't really. And even here where, okay, she's met him a couple times, maybe she does kind of have a vague recognition. There's still that sense of he's so kind of blindingly magical that like, do you ever really remember conversations you've had with him afterwards? Sure. Like, we've used the kind of perception filter analogy, I feel like there's, <laughs> he has one in that like, yeah, she even her level headedness gets her through, and she can kind of keep a clear enough head to get out of that situation. But could she really account for it afterwards? I don't know. Like it, it yeah. Like it never seems to occur to her to wonder, like, who is this guy, and like, why are you offering these weird things? Like, he is able to deflect all of that. And even in the first meeting in this episode there's um there's that moment where it seems like she almost recognizes him mm-hmm. and and then it kind of like passes like she it just kind of like goes by without ever saying a name or you know whatever um the yeah so anyway um And she does seem, and when when they're on the bench, she does seem to remember that they had met before. Because mm. well, or at least the way that she phrases, she says the next time we meet, you know, we'll be in the presence of my husband or whatever, you know, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. I suppose that doesn't necessarily mean she remembers the previous meeting, but I sort of took it to imply that like, okay, this is the second time you've sort of approached me when I'm alone and by myself, which is what alone means. Um, but, uh, 
you know, next time that's not like you're not to approach me again without my husband being present, right. basically. Right. Um, so I, I guess the way she says it doesn't automatically mean that she remembers the, the time before, but I sort of took it to that that's what she meant, mm-hmm. that she was saying, like, all right, this has happened twice. Right. It's not going to happen right. a third time. Right. Um, although I could, maybe I could be wrong. Like, I, I don't think that that discounts your perception filter because I, yeah. I sort of agree. Like, there's, there is a sense where, like, she sees this guy and it's always at the Poles' house and, or at least, you know, these two times have been at the Poles' house and she sort of has a vague sense of, like, he's, he's one of those, like, hangers around right. who, like, maybe are attracted to, you know, nobility and that kind of thing, but doesn't necessarily know who she is, just has sort of a vague sense that she's seen him here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and that's more what I was thinking of, like, not that she literally can't remember, but, like, the haziness of it seems to, right? you know, or or to even question, like, exactly who he is or why his hair is weird or, like, you know, like, yeah. um, it seems like some of those details are kind of fuzzy. Um, or she doesn't think about them to the extent that she might have otherwise. So. Um, so, right. He's like, a, oh, oh, it's that guy. Um, right. Again, right. Right. Like, I've seen him around. Before. Right. Right. But then when, when you're not with him, you don't really yeah, pursue you're not that line of thought. Yeah. Right. Um, yep. Uh, so then there's the um, sort of third scene with them that she's not aware of um, where it's, uh, you know, she's, I guess, writing another letter in the study um, and the gentleman and Stephen are there sort of in their uh, hidden, hidden form mm-hmm. watching her and, and sort of talking about her. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh but uh, unlike unlike Jonathan, who sort of senses and and hears snippets of the conversation between the gentleman and Stephen, she doesn't have that ability. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I don't. I mean, I don't know that I have anything to say there other than just like it's it sort of leads into the stuff with Jonathan and uh, the gentleman. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you have anything specific about that. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the gentleman is spurned now, so he's, you know, not now he's not only kind of interested in her, but he's pissed at her too. So, you know, just his sure. motivation is, is a little that much stronger to uh, get what he wants. So that's the only kind of change that I would point out. Um, yeah. Well, and and sort of the self-justification of how he's treating the humans yeah here, right, right right like right nobody you know, cares about who, you i care about who you. loves Come her with me. yeah the magician has abandoned her which is kind of what he's already said to her right. and then uh, well who loves lady pole with her dreary disposition well again she didn't have that dreary disposition before she died right. you know presumably um and who loves you no, it is best for you to be at my house where it is known you are of kingly birth and no one frowns at this. Um, yeah. 
you know, again, like, yeah, but these are all situations you've contrived, right? right? Like, like, again, is this, I mean, not that, like, the magician abandoning her is a situation, I guess, that he contrived, but, like, his pointing out to her that, like, Mm -hmm. and, I mean, inaccurately, too, it seems, Mm -hmm. uh, if, if the ending of the episode when, you know, Jonathan comes back is any indication, um, you know, his sort of, like, stoking the smoldering fire of doubt you know within her is is certainly something that he does like none of these are like foregone conclusions it's just again sort of his own justifications for the ways that he's acting to you know justify his you know sort of set collection of these new pieces in his menagerie Mm -hmm. um so speaking of Stephen, um, and the gentleman specifically, uh, yeah, there's this recurring thing where the gentleman sort of referring to Stephen as uh, a future king, mm-hmm. as someone who's destined to become a king. Um, and interesting here, so we get the comparison of Stephen to the Raven King, right? He says the Raven King himself began life as a nameless slave in a fairy kingdom and rose to great heights. Um, and then, you know, Stephen, you know, I'm not a slave, you know, no man who stands in English soil can be a slave. Um, Sir Walter's father was kind to me. Um, and then the gentleman shows him sort of this flashback, uh, you know, vision of his own birth on a slave ship and, you know, sort of being uh whisked away mm-hmm. um and it's specifically sir walter's father the the elder sir pole i guess mm-hmm. i don't i don't know is his name also walter um i don't know if we get that right um, i can't remember yeah i don't if know that, if we if, get that or not uh they just refer to sir walter walter's father um he was kind and he christened him and educated him, but uh, his his mother never gave him a name. And so he was a nameless slave, apparently. Um, is the implication here that Stephen is Walter's brother? Oh. Or, or. That honestly I, never occurred to me. But it absolutely could be. I I don't remember that from the book. If if that's ever implied or thought, or if it is, I never I don't recall picking up on it. So, but the thing that made me wonder is because like if this is a slave ship, then why is Stephen sort of saved off it and brought to Walter? You know, Walter's father's household. Mm-hmm. Like, is there? Yeah, is there a blood relationship Mm. that we can sort of infer because of that? Or is it just he was a baby and maybe, I don't, maybe Walter felt some kind of empathy for him that he didn't feel for, like, other slaves? Like, I don't, I don't know what else could be a reason for why Stephen was sort of singled out, if not for that reason. Right. Sure. Yeah, I don't know why that uh, has not, to my memory, ever occurred to me before, but um, that 
it's very plausible. Um, especially because he is kind of singled out, as you said, and sort of raised in the household and given... And treated kindly right, and right. given, you know, some sort of right. power. Given, and, like, a relative amount of, of privilege for, like, compared to the other people on that slave ship. Um, yeah, certainly there. And even compared to the other servants in the household, mm-hmm. it seems like. Right, right. Um hmm. Because you get that you get that sense of all the others who are like leaving to go back to like their homes where they grew up and whatever, and it's like, well, Stephen can't really do that. Like this is his home where right. he grew up, right? You know, um, yeah. Um. Anyway, so yeah, I, I mean, so there's that comparison to the Raven King, um. And there's these references to the gentleman making Stephen a king and sort of like showing to him like these elements of pro- prophecy and, you know, whatever that, you know, the nameless slave shall be king. Or, I don't even know if it if that's prophecy exactly or, or whatever, but um, just that idea that like Stephen seems to be fitting whatever bill mm-hmm. uh you know, that the gentleman is looking at. Um, but again, the gentleman seems good at justifying his actions. Mm-hmm. So, like, what is he ignoring or not saying? Or what is he sort of, you know, adapting to his own purposes, whatever those might be, well, is the, the question that we have. And, like you said, those things that he was listing as truths... Are situations that he contrived like right well you know you feel abandoned by your husband well why is that and like you know or nobody wants to be around lady pole because she's such a bummer like again why is that um right so you kind of again have to wonder here like you know you're destined to be a king in the fairy realm is could just be translation for I will contrive to make you king <laughs> of like of my fairy kingdom. Like, you know, maybe there like there is this prophecy that we've heard, but also like how much of it is just the gentleman arranging things in a way that sort of is pleasing to him. Yeah. Or something like uh like back with uh you know, when talking about the Russell Davies era of Doctor Who, where you said like, oh, sometimes he just sprinkled things throughout and then like he might pick up on them later. Right. Like, is this is this a prophecy the gentleman made himself like right. 400 years ago? And now he's like, oh, yeah, I remember I said this thing once. Right. Hmm. You were a slave and you didn't have a name. Yeah, why not? I'll make you king. You know, right. like, like oh, that's a this seems like a good way to adapt that old saying that we yeah. have, like. You know, this kind of works. So, yeah, the relationship between kind of these supposedly destined truisms and what the gentleman wants is not entirely, like, that line isn't really clear. Mm -hmm. All right, so we've gone over time and we still haven't talked about Uh, Strange on the continent. Um, Well, let's try to be... Try... Yeah. Uh, all right. So, I mean, it is kind of funny to see him kind of traipsing around, trying to find Wellington. Um, 
I don't know that we need to go every step of the way. No, he no. eventually does find him, or rather gets to a place where Wellington finds Strange. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't go that well. Um, <laughs> I like when he's like, well, I can make a plague of locusts or frogs. And he's like, you might as well just give them roast chicken. Right. Um, obviously implying that the French them. are perfectly fine yeah. eating the frogs and the locusts. Right. Like, why would um, you feed my enemy? Yeah. Um, or like, I can make it rain. It's like, well, it was just winter and it rained, you know, for six months or whatever. Right. It just you know, stopped like, raining. Why would you make it rain? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why would you do that? Um, yeah. And so I, I mean, so those few early scenes, I think, are um, one, just sort of the so you get the um, obviously like the, the fairy motif is like pulling someone out of their sort of known comfortable world Mm -hmm. and into a fairy realm right and i think we've already seen several of those sorts of things here i i kind of get the sense that that's what jonathan here is with the war as well right it's it's leaving the comforts of your home and going to a perilous realm Mm -hmm. you know of like things that are strange and and surrealistic in some ways um, and so a lot of that is his acclamation to what this place is and kind of its oddities and, yeah. you know, the oddities of war and, and kind of the things that you deal with there. Um, everything from sort of random gunshots to, you know, having to like deal with sort of strong personalities of people who don't want you there. Yeah. Um, and he sort of, I think where he starts to, Feel his footing, so to speak, is when he finally has a chance to sit down with the men around the campfire and kind of they initially give him sort of like you know evil looks or or at least distrustful looks. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's able to sort of draw out of them, um, not directly. Like I like that he he's like asked them directly. So what is it you really want? And they're like women and food and you know all the carnal desires that like soldiers might want um but then it comes down to it's like oh well you know none of us knows how to read can you read our letters to us and there's sort of this like it has nothing to do with him being a magician but the fact that he can read books that like you know is the thing that sort of starts them warming up and then you know through conversation learns that like oh you know i asked my girlfriend or whatever or wife to send me boots you know did she say anything about the boots that are supposed to arrive to me and uh you know oh well why do you need new boots and you know he kind of learns what the actual you know Mm -hmm. travails of the english foot soldier are which is interesting so when he first meets wellington wellington's like oh you you know parliament sort of forced you on me to you know help out but they don't actually know what i need and and he sort of like dismisses him but i get the sense that like there's that same sort of ignorance going from wellington to his soldiers that uh, that norrell yeah that strange is able to discover Mm -hmm. just by sitting down and sort of talking to them um and i i mean maybe wellington knows that his soldiers need boots but like those aren't the things he talks about. The things he talks about are like troop movements right, and like where, things, yeah. where his cannon are and, you know, all of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's not like oh does you know private john need a new pair of boots right, right. Um, even though he might sort of know in the back of his head that like yes you know there we have to have a supply chain of some kind right and um, Norrell, or again Norrell, not Norrell, strange yeah. um kind of splits the difference where it's like okay he doesn't give them all new boots but he builds a road and so their boots are kind of saved you know they, it's right. easier for them to walk and it also they're not going to get worn out as quick right yeah. and it also helps uh, Wellington sort of tactically to get where they're going presumably more quickly right. and easily and in a you know over terrain that maybe they wouldn't you know the enemy wouldn't expect that yeah. sort of thing yeah he makes this sort of raised you know uh road you know like with you know very I mean it's not paved but it's you know about as flat as you could get without a bulldozer I guess right, right? right. like um of course, the complaint is that it's, like, too windy over the hills. So right. I guess, like, next time he wants uh, Strange to sort of move the hills right. out of the way. Straighten and make it out, it straighter. yeah. Um, right. There's always yeah. going to be something. Um, right. There's always room for improvement. Um, right. And then it moves to um, move that forest for me. Um you know, right, which like once Strange just, proves himself, it's like okay, now, now just you do can whatever, just do anything, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and I like the complicatedness of that idea of like, well, you have to like negotiate with the living. Like, it's not just rocks, you know. I mean, even the rocks in Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell, like the very earth has some life in it. Is kind of the impression, but like. Certainly, you can't just move a forest without asking politely. Like, this is living things with a will. You know, it's a very kind of Entish idea. Um, they have a will of their own, and, and you best not just tell them what to do. Right. They might not like soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> Which, we don't even know what, like, that means. Like, does that mean they just won't move? Or does that mean, is there something more, right. or like... Might, you might not yeah, come like, out of that forest, yeah. Hugh Arnish around, right, right. you know, that, like, uh, idea. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and so, and, I mean, with that, so then it's like, you know, there's no, there's no real negotiating with Lord Wellington, right? It's like... Right. I want you to move the forest, so go move the forest. And and like he assigns him a you know captain or whatever. He's like, you know, try to make sure he doesn't get shot, at least not until after he moves the forest. Like like at that point it's okay if he gets shot. Right. Um which it's almost guaranteed that they will, because like if you move the forest, like right. you're moving they're, away your they're the van they're they're now the vanguard of the English right. army, right? Because the rest of the English army can't get through the forest um until it's moved so uh you move the forest and there's nothing between you and the french army like that's pretty much it um but yeah so he goes and he tries to do it and and can't at least he's not able to before they're discovered and so they get attacked um and we so we mentioned the um jeremy sort of pushing him out of the way mm -hmm. of of the cannonball and sort of sacrificing his own life and it i mean 
presume I, I don't know if Norrell has seen any combat before then. Although he talks about like Strange. Oh, man, I did it again. Yeah, sorry, strange. Uh, so he talks about, um, like, get, he's like, I got robbed once and found a Frenchman in my tent and, you know, like, all of these things. But those are, like, those are, like, the funny anecdotes of war, mm-hmm. right? Like, you don't get the sense that, like, those are any, like, real danger that he's in. Even though, I mean, they're, like, yes, okay, getting robbed. Like, presumably, maybe that was at gunpoint or bayonet point or something. But, like, he made it through okay and like you know burning down the house that he was in and you know finding a frenchman in his tent like those are like the stories you come home with to like talk to your buddies at the pub about right, right? like they're not they don't they're not like sort of the dangerous things like it's it's unclear like how much battle he's mm. actually seen to this point and so this is obviously where it hits home to him um and so two interesting things. One, I mean, they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin, I guess. One, that he he doesn't like immediately think about the books. He thinks about Jeremy, mm-hmm. uh, which is to his credit, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but then also that Jeremy is the one who thinks about the books, right? Like mm-hmm. that he's, he saved Strange's life, but like maybe let him down because he allowed the books to get destroyed, right. um, which is sort of his last thought before he dies mm-hmm. um so obviously this you know in the moment it sort of shell shocks him um he has enough presence of mind to sort of create this mist to hide them the the english army or at least the band that he's with until presumably reinforcements can arrive because mm-hmm. they don't move like Norrell's still sitting there by jeremy's body strange so like oh my god <laughs> Strange is still sitting there by Jeremy's body. Yeah. Um, <laughs> man, I, I'll just start calling him Merlin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like That's Wellington easier. Does. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's still sitting there by Jeremy's body and, and the sort of, you know, uh, book. So right, right. presumably the rest of the English army like came through and chased away. Right. Something like that. Uh, yeah. Or something happened. Or, or they. Or they left just not being able to find, you know, the Englishmen in the mist. Um, yeah, and I mean, that's where it sort of really comes home to him. And, um, yeah, I mean, I you know, what do you say? Like, there's the, you know, moments where he's sitting at the table and sort of maybe trying to reconstruct some of the books. Um, Mm -hmm. and Wellington gives him orders to like figure out what's going on and, you know, where, where his cannon have gone and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it's, you know, sort of forces him to like, realize like he has to keep, keep going on even despite the tragedy, which is, you know, I mean, that's part of war, I guess. And so, um, he has to sort of figure out a way to do it. And uh, then you get the scene with the zombies where it's like they resurrect these Italian, I guess. Neapolitans, of like, yeah. 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 Um, so are they like mercenaries or are they like counterinsurgents also against the French? Because, I mean, this is Napoleon, so he's right. like taking over the continent. Like, it's not clear like what 
Yeah, I I kind of miss the intricacies of exactly like um, who you know, other than and like some are, Italian are they soldiers. in Italy at this point? Like, it's also not clear entirely where they are. I think like, they're in Italy. I think they but are in it. So it's, these it's are maybe like tell. Italian like, soldiers like, who are also fighting Napoleon, right? But not part of the English army per se. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, they're. Yeah, and there's some information. I mean, this is like, I feel like there's a lot of story there that gets kind of compressed sure. and chucked in in like 10 seconds of like, blah, it's like a blur of exposition and I didn't even really catch. Like, you know, they are, I guess, if not allies, at least like soldiers who are also in the war against Napoleon and have some information that they can you know, give if only they could talk. So, yeah. So strange. Yeah. Um, does his version of the kind of neural resurrection thing, a very different, de- you know, depiction of being raised from the dead. Um, but it's, you know, other than the fact that he doesn't, invoke a fairy to make a bargain it's not terribly dissimilar to the kinds of things that you know Norrell did and now is trying to you know hush up um and this is this is a uh, and and seeing again the reticence of what uh Norrell didn't want to do when like the other people like oh you know how about captain so-and-so yeah too decayed and it's like well now we see what that looks like maybe and this is like presumably not long decayed you know these italian soldiers but um and we don't know how long the other guy was you know the ones that the parliament wanted to resurrect we don't know how long maybe right like years (laughs) yeah um yeah um yeah and and but it's long enough that they've learn to speak the language of hell and come back like begging to not be sent back like oh yeah and so i don't know what's grosser the the corpses or spitting into their mouths (laughs) like that's kind of and also like thinking like these are actors like who actually had to get spit in their mouths right right? like (laughs) i'm sure you faked it yeah, maybe it's digital spit. Right. Um, I mean, because you can see it. Yeah. So yeah. there's. Yeah, I hope it was a digital loogie. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which. But yeah, which, that is a pretty. That's a gross scene all around. And I think, like, they do a good job of showing the toll that it takes on Jonathan Strange. Like, just how utterly disturbing he finds the whole thing. Well, that and how out of his own depth that he is. Yeah, right. Right, um, that kind of frantic, I can't figure out how to kill them again. <laughs> like, what are we going to do? Right. And is this, because this is blood magic. Mm-hmm. So, like, does that run out? Like, is it, because uh, what, what's the, um, he talks about, like, borrowed life, mm, right? Yeah. Like, 
is that does that mean it's like temporary right. like will it run out at some point right um we assume i guess that like setting the windmill on fire kills them but maybe that isn't an assumption we should absolutely don't make. know um yeah and, and or and, but like the first suggestion is like just set them out like just set them to wander somewhere like just let them go so like again like is the assumption that if it's borrowed life that that life will run out at some point and they'll just you know fall down and decompose wherever they are which there's probably soldiers decomposing all over the countryside right so like that would be no different than anywhere else mm -hmm. but yeah like how long is that like does it like does a drop of blood last a day did they get more than a drop of blood like you know or does it last a year yeah. like how long are these corpses wandering around the countryside and you know terrorizing people yeah, perhaps. right um yeah or or does by like like maybe setting them on fire doesn't like re-kill them but maybe it just burns all the flesh off so their bones don't like stay together anymore and like it just yeah they're just living piles of bones for a while until the blood magic runs out who knows i it these are all this is how inanimate objects in epic stories like talk right, right. <laughs> clearly um yeah and i think like you said the the main point is not that like the, the point is kind of that we don't know how any of that works and that neither does Jonathan and that like right. the solution is like oh, just burn it down like it, like they're distracting my magician like just get rid of them you know the, the we don't the less we have to look at them the better so not a lot of thought into what happens to their soul or their consciousness or whatever once that happens it's just like out of sight, out of mind, get well, them, get them out of there. Cause like, and I don't think, I mean, I think we already know what happened to their souls. Well, right. The language of hell. Yes. Um, but, but I mean like, do they stay hanging around in their pile of bones or do they right. go straight back? Go we, back. We don't know. Um, and like as much as Jonathan's disturbed by what he did and the whole thing, I think he's also relieved to have it done, you know, like, to, to be able to like ride away and leave the, the burning window behind hands. him is like, yeah. you know, that's better than nothing. Yep. Um, and so also like before he comes back home, then you get that moment too of the soldiers all sort of taking their hats off to him mm -hmm. and, and him receiving sort of their respect at least. So like, I don't know if this is like English magic is now, entirely respectable mm -hmm. but it's at least he's earned some respect with the magic mm -hmm. uh that he's done or at least a recognition that like he's one of them like he's lost and he's been in the thick of it and has also done his part to help all of them mm -hmm. and so maybe it has nothing to do with the magic maybe it's I mean, he used magic to help them and stuff, but maybe it's just that he was willing to help and willing to try to save people. Mm -hmm. And yes, maybe he was shell-shocked initially, but like came around and like saved some, like um, whatever the 
I don't know, captain or major or whatever he is, you know, who says like, you know, you didn't move the forest, but you at least saved some yeah. of our lives. And like, there's something in that, even if we didn't achieve our goal, like there's, there's a recognition that he's actually there to help them and isn't just kind of a, you know, bureaucrat on tour sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then he goes home. So is this like the t- again? Maybe it's the compressed timing. Is this like the end of the war? Then, like, is it is the assumption that like okay, they got what they needed from the right. dead soldiers, and then or like wrapped up, at least like, the end of his involvement in it? Yeah, I don't think we. Yeah, I don't really remember exactly what the timeline is, but I think that's kind of the end of what Jonathan sees of it. So maybe it I is mean, sort of the end of the napoleonic wars in general yeah it's hard it's hard to know because like we're talking like i mean traveling like this he didn't like hop a flight he didn't hop like you know british air right there's more time than what we (laughs) get like clearly this feels rushed in a way that like i think it's you're supposed to understand that he's been there for a long time right and which also has implications for then Lady Pole. Mm. Like how long is she actually up in her yeah. room right. tied down? Right. And I guess if she is able to like little by little like work her, you know, bonds off, mm-hmm. then it happens presumably over months, possibly more than a year, that it would take strange to come back right Mm -hmm. yeah again not necessarily knowing the exact timeline and or even if the timeline is the same for when we see i mean i i would assume that like the events we see with strange between the events at home in england happen chronologically but i guess we don't really know sure yeah right um that would just be the assumption. Uh, anyway, all that to say that, like, he does come home um, after some period of time um, and seems like a changed man. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point that um, Arabella seems a little put off by him. Uh, I mean, I, I don't necessarily even think in a bad way, just like what she says, uh, I cannot keep my countenance if you stare at me like that. Um, you know, just that uh, idea of, you know, you always had your nose in some dusty old book um, and him sort of like teasing her about, you know, forgetting how quarrelsome she was mm-hmm. and all of that kind of thing of like, you know, definitely the war has changed him, but also he doesn't seem displeased in the way that the gentleman suggested that he would be mm-hmm. when he got back from the war. He seems entirely happy mm-hmm. uh, and content mm-hmm. being where he is. Right. And not, I mean, not that he's completely stopped thinking about magic, I'm sure, but like, it certainly doesn't seem to be the forefront of his mind like it was mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason. Right. Um, right. And then Norrell comes to visit, of course. Yeah. And, invites him 
invites him to to come return uh, the books. Yeah, well, to come, yeah, sort of debrief, I guess, but also to return the books, mm-hmm. and I guess we'll see how well that goes. Um, oh, and we didn't mention so the one book that gets saved, of course, yeah, is the child's history of the raven. Mm-hmm. Um, it's convenient. So. <laughs> Anywho, any other final thoughts on Strange there? Um, I know we kind of leave it, I mean, it's not really a cliffhanger, but it's kind of like, okay, like now we we haven't gotten much of Norrell in this episode, despite my, the fact that I said Norrell a bunch of times. <laughs> um, you know, so that's kind of where yeah. I'm sure we'll pick up is with that conversation about what happened to my books. Sure. <laughs> um, it, I don't remember exactly, but I'm sure I'm sure we'll get some of that. Yeah, yeah, um, I think there'll be then, a few words about the books. Um, and then obviously the implications of children ass getting shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. Any anything else there about where it ends? I guess it. I mean, I guess that is that's the cliffhanger. I was thinking sure. cliffhanger in terms right. of right. No, and, strange and normal. Yeah, no, um, it's more the children, children mass is the cliffhanger. Is. Um, yeah, no, I don't think I have any other, uh, any other thoughts. Cool. Well, we've certainly talked long enough anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll be back, uh, to learn about what happened to the books, or at least learn how Strange describes what happened to the books, and we'll see if children not survive. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Um, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, and oh. we'll get the return of yet another. Jeez. I know we've had several. Had a, I mean, a run here. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, like, I feel like so. It's the last season. I mean, not that they necessarily actually knew. We'll talk about whether or not they knew it was the last season of Angel. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, like Buffy's done. Mm-hmm. But and so like now it's like okay, like we need to like bring back a bunch of characters and have all these cameos and stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, we'll get another another character that we maybe haven't seen in a while. Um. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, sounds good. See you then. Mm-hmm.